passage this morning is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. If you're going to use the Bible there in your seats, that should be page 1014. Mentioned last Sunday that we're taking a brief break from 1 Corinthians. As God's word, it is good and helpful, but maybe not where many of us are at. So the plan is uh, to spend a few more weeks in 1 Peter chapter 1 and then return. So this week, next week, I'll be off on the 12th and then the 19th and then resuming uh, 1 Corinthians after that. Last week, Peter addressed the various Christians in Galatia and Cappadocia and Bithynia as elect exiles, chosen by God, sanctified in the spirit, sprinkled with the blood of Christ. He continues the letter to them now. Let's hear what Peter has to say to these churches, what the spirit has to say to all his people. First Peter 1, 3 through 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Lord, we have heard your word read aloud, and we pray that not only has have our ears taken it in, but our hearts and our minds and our souls have already begun to take it in. But we pray, Lord, that in these moments, by your Spirit's help, according to your kindness and mercy, you might place your word within us, that you would have your way with us to encourage and instruct, to convict and to assure us in a way that is pleasing to you. Would all that I say be unto that purpose? Would all that falls short be quickly forgotten? Our hope is in you as we hear your word. Amen. Dreams can be a, a funny conversation piece. Dreams can be serious. They can be the subject of uh, discussions with our counselors and our therapists even. But let me just ask you this. What is the first dream that you remember having? 
six, seven, four, five, maybe even younger. I don't know if this is the first dream that I remember, but it's the first one I can hold on to. When I was about four or five, when I was at my grandparents' site, dreamt one night that I climbed a tall, tall ladder to a tall, tall tower. And in front of me were scattered hundreds of people cheering. For I was in the world championship of sliding down a slide. And this slide, down the slide, would crown the world champion of sliding. And there, at a dizzying height, I surveyed the crowd, I strapped on my helmet, I pushed off, and I won. And the crowds cheered Ian Hard, the sliding champion of the world. Dreams whether the childhood dreams of a four and five-year-old or our waking dreams. They share some characteristics, things that we desire for ourselves. Most of us have some form of dream where we are hopeful, where we are desirous of, of wealth or security or significance. I wanted to be the sliding champion of the world, to be important, to be rich and wealthy and admired. Maybe your dream is not to have the wealth of Elon Musk. Maybe your dream isn't to be the next president of our country, nor as popular and important as Taylor Swift, but we all have aspirations of a certain quality of life of a certain amount of influence or respectability or to matter, if not to the whole world or to the whole internet, to a certain group of people or maybe just one other important person. Some of us have fulfilled certain dreams that we had from younger days. Some of us are still pursuing dreams and others of us have seen our dreams fade and in some cases die. What do you do when your dreams fall apart? Your dream of playing professional baseball ruined by a messed up shoulder, your business success destroyed by an unscrupulous employee, the love that you had for a person not returned to you. What should the elect exiles that Peter is writing to do when the dreams that they share with most of us, some amount of financial security, some respectability, some control in their life seems to have been taken away by circumstances outside of their control. Certainly their faith and likely their forced migration has left them impoverished. It's left them vulnerable and it's left them marginalized. They've lost their wealth if, as it seems, they've been pushed out from the center of the empire to the hinterlands, then they have lost contact with their source of wealth. In the day and age in which Peter writes, most wealth was held in land. If you've been kicked out of your homeland and away from your families, pushed aside, your hope 
for financial success has been cut off. Even if this is not the case, that these are just Christians who feel exiled compared to the community in which they live, most ability to be financially successful was not dependent on yourself, but who you knew. And if you can't participate in the guild because you won't worship their gods, or if your family has kicked you out for being a Christian and you can't participate in the family business, suddenly you are without hope of strong financial means. If you're cut off, you don't know who you can trust. You don't have the protection of your family and your friends and your social networks in a new situation or cut off because you have chosen to put your trust in Jesus instead of the local deities. And if these are men and women from the center of the empire, they've been kicked out to the hinterlands, to the rural places where there is no power, where there is no influence. Christians on the edge of the world. What do you do when your dreams die? Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ, tells these men and women they should praise God, that they should rejoice exceedingly. Is Peter callous? Is he saying God doesn't care about what you're experiencing, about your dreams or your sufferings? Does he just not get it? Or is he just saying, get over it? These things that you're dreaming of, they don't matter. Your hopes don't matter. Everything you want doesn't matter. It can feel that way, can't it? We can ask God, does what I want for my life matter when you allow these circumstances and these events to happen, chosen and unchosen for our sins? Do these things matter? Of course they do. Consider what we were made for. Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden of Eden, a paradise full of fruit from every tree from which they could eat. They experienced perfect wealth and abundance. They were given authority and dominion over the world to name the animals and to exert that authority with strength and power. And they were given the special task as image bearers to fill the world with other image bearers to glorify God. God had given them wealth. God had given them security and significance. Peter isn't insensitive, nor is he celebrating these hardships in and of themselves. He acknowledges their grief. He knows they're grieving because of these trials. He doesn't just try to tell them to buck up, but he does invite them into a deeper hope, a deeper dream, a deeper reality than the world corrupted by sin can offer us. Your sins may have, excuse me, your dreams may have died, but you have been born again to a living hope. The dreams that this world may offer you may seem out of reach now, but there is a greater hope, a hope that is living and available to you according to the mercies of Christ. Instead of focusing on what has been lost by their circumstances as they trust in Christ, Peter points these churches, he points these men and women to what their gain is in Christ. He invites them and he invites us into joy and praise, even in the midst of difficult circumstances, even in the midst of suffering, because in Christ 
you are rich. Because in Christ, you are strong. And because in Christ, you are important. The ways in which the world and their hopes for the world to fulfill these things for themselves might have been removed because of persecution, might have been removed because they've been rejected for their faith in Christ. But in Christ, they are still wealthy and secure and significant. Peter starts out with a word of worship to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he points to why God is deserving of this praise and worship. And he says, you have been born again to a living hope. A living hope. Not a hope that is destined to die, but one that is alive because it's sustained in the reality of Christ's resurrection. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because of what Jesus has done, we have an inheritance. Whatever our family of origin, through Jesus, we are born into a new family. We are born again. Your old family might have cut you off. Your new family may not be able to care for you in the way that you want. But in Christ, according to the fatherhood of God, who sent his son to whom we are to give praise, we have a new family. We are in the family of the king. We are made heirs with Christ to God's glorious riches. We're rich because we are in the family of the king, and we are rich because as those in the family of the king, he gives us a perfect inheritance. Notice the nature of the inheritance. We are born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, that is undefiled, that is unfading. Most of us live in a day and age in which most of our wealth is, is not tangible. It's numbers on a screen. Maybe it's a little bit of paper in our wallets. But most wealth in this day and age was what you could touch and feel. It was in jewelry that could uh, be tarnished or stolen. It was in land that could be corrupted through pollution, through famine, through a plague that would spread through the crops that were stored up in the storehouses. Tapestries and garments and rugs that were of wealth could fade and lose their worth. Peter says, your inheritance is one that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. He echoes the words that he heard from Jesus himself, who said, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. We are brought in through Christ's death and resurrection through faith into a new family with the king, have an inheritance that cannot be destroyed and an inheritance that is kept for us. Not only is it a rich inheritance, not only can it not be defiled or fade, but it is kept in heaven for you. Who can steal from God? Who can cheat God out of what is his? 
Not only does he bring us into his family and promise this, but he maintains this inheritance for us. Economies can crash. Our bank passwords can be stolen. Our mansions that we've saved up our whole life to buy or to build can burn down. We look for something secure financially. We say, well, well, well let's, let's anchor our wealth to the gold standard. Even later in this passage, it talks about, though tested by fire, even gold can perish and will one day. We praise God when we get a nice paycheck. We rejoice when we get a good tax return or a windfall from a loved one. We praise God when the retirement savings are strong, yes. But we praise God that we have the riches of eternal life. All the goodness of the new heavens and the new earth where sin and sorrow and death and not even the evil one can destroy. If our hopes were to be fulfilled in what we could gain in this life, then we would be right to do all that we could to secure as much wealth for ourselves, to take care of ourselves first. But if our faith is not in what this life has to offer, then the eternal riches of Christ make us grateful rather than fearful and make us generous rather than possessive. It makes us grateful worshiping God because whatever we have comes from him. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has been merciful and given us an inheritance that he keeps for us. Praise God. Not what we have done, not what we have earned. God has done it and he gives it to us. Praise God. It invites us to be generous, knowing that whatever we give away, whatever amount of time or energy or treasure we give in the name of the king, there's always more where that came from. We may be able to exhaust our bank accounts, but we can never exhaust the inheritance that is ours in Christ. Kept in heaven for you and for me. Whatever our standing financially in this world, whatever our prosperity or lack of it, in Christ, your wealth can never be taken. We are rich in Christ. We are in Christ strong and secure. There are lots of ways to be strong, but strength and the seeking of strength is usually about security. The physically strong want to be able to handle whatever task comes their way. We want to be professionally strong, have a good resume, to be networked and to be well-connected, to be in the know, to have a tribe and be secure and strong in those various relationships and contexts. These churches don't feel very powerful or very strong. They do not have political influence. They do not have cultural sway. They are not financially influential, nor do they have relational networks cut off by their distinct faith and likely cut off from their home churches and families. And so in these moments, as Peter writes to this people, they are vulnerable to pain. They're vulnerable to attack. They are vulnerable to the whims of others. And therefore, they're suffering trials. They are tempted by what they are experiencing. But that feeling is not the whole truth. Notice that it isn't just their inheritance that is kept, but them. 
Verse 4 ends saying, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith to a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The strength at work in the lives of these men and women who feel so powerless in the face of their circumstances, their power is not limited to their lack. Their power is in that of God who is keeping them until the final day of salvation. That's their strength. And if we miss this truth about God keeping his people until the day of salvation, then we might tend to miss or misunderstand what verses 6 and 7 are are talking about. But if we understand that we are kept through the faith that God gives us, which anchors us in Christ until the last day of salvation, we can understand how we might rejoice in the midst of trials, even as we're grieving. Peter does not say these trials are insignificant. They are painful. We don't have a description of the trials It doesn't seem to be one form of persecution and uses the plural. It might be various forms of persecution, rejection, isolation, personal attacks. We don't know. But we know they aren't home and they don't feel at home. And there might be temptation to even turn back from Jesus because of what they are experiencing. But these circumstances, these trials can be a grounds for rejoicing. Because they are an opportunity for strengthening through the purifying of their faith, because they demonstrate the frailty of the security and strength this world offers. Let me, let me rephrase that, if that's not clear. Peter is saying, this is as if you are being tested by fire. Many of them would understand that gold has various forms of impurity. You, you heat it up, you boil it, so that the dross, the impurities, can come to the surface and be removed. Your faith is being tested by these circumstances so that things about your weakness, about your insecurity, about your doubts might be brought to the surface that they could be removed. It is a painful but strengthening, purifying process. And the way that trials can do that for us is it reveals the insecurity of the things that we might want to put our faith in. We might want to put our faith in a relationship to make us feel whole. Our financial well-being or our political power. Or our kids fitting the mold and plan and vision that we have for them to be successful and grow up into the men and women we want them to be. And when those things don't work out, when our health fades where our good standing is threatened, it shows us that these things are not strong enough to make us secure. What we need, rather, is our faith, which unites us to the ultimate anchor and security in life, Jesus himself. That until the day of salvation comes, when Jesus comes and makes all things new, and every evil is finally destroyed, until that day, do we want to be anchored to this world? Or would we rather be unsettled in our connections to this world so that our connection to the next can be stronger. Wine is a big deal in France. And in certain regions, according to get to meet certain standards, some farms cannot water their vineyards. They have to be completely dependent 
on whatever natural rainfall there is to water their vines. And some people would say, well, that threatens those vines. They can suffer from drought. They could die. They could be exposed to illness. They're going to be less fruitful. Why would a, a country that prides itself on its wine and its heritage put these strict requirements? Because they recognize that in those times of drought when there is less water, the roots of those vines go deep, searching for water that they can't get from the surface. And so in future years, having dug deep, having found sources of water that are not surface dependent, they have richer minerals, richer uh, nutrition, and lasting sources of water from which they can be more fruitful. When Jesus allows us to be cut off from the comforts of this world, even if they're good comforts like friends and family and good food, it reminds us that these things are not our ultimate security. They're not our ultimate strength. So we can be refreshed and re-strengthened in the only thing that lasts, which is him. What is truly stable and secure? God, who is our rock and our redeemer, our fortress and our high tower. It is God who never slumbers nor sleeps, not our friends or our security systems. It is God who keeps his covenant promises. Present circumstances may grieve us. They may make us feel weak, but faith in Christ fills us with joy and glory for it is the means of assurance of a future salvation that cannot be taken from us because nothing can take us from the hand of God who holds us. That means that when we go through difficult circumstances, we may ask why. God doesn't tell us to stop asking why, even if he doesn't answer that question for us. We have so many examples in the Psalms, but it might lead us beyond why to ask how. How, God, can I trust you in this moment? How, God, do you want me to serve beyond my circumstances? How, even in the midst of my pain and my brokenness, might you show your perfect provision? And what, what do you want me to do? What do you have for me that the world cannot offer? Brothers and sisters, we may in the moment feel weak and vulnerable, but in Christ, we are secure and we are strong, for we are anchored to a sure future in Christ. Lastly, brothers and sisters, we are important. We don't like that word, maybe significant. We often judge the importance of someone or something by how many eyes are upon it. We love our National Football League in America. But then the rest of the world says, oh, you have a couple million watch the Super Bowl. How about a couple billion watching the World Cup? TikTok videos, YouTube, they count how many views. Movies by ticket sales. Concerts by the number of attendees to watch the person performing. We judge the importance of a political candidate by how many people come out to see them speak. Even those of us that don't seek importance and significance through the eyes of many upon us. Some of us don't like the limelight. We still want the eyes of at least one person to see us as we truly are. 
while these churches are on the edges of society, in the midst of a culture that isn't looking to Christians, Peter reminds them that they matter. For the prophets have been looking forward centuries, trying to see the who and the when of what the Spirit was predicting through them, of a coming Messiah who would suffer, and yet his sufferings would result in glory. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when predicting the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. As Peter speaks to this, these men and women, as we overhear these words for our good today, we as Christians are reminded that we are tied to the most important point in human history. But instead of looking forward with uncertainty, we can look back with certainty to the fulfillment of God's promises when Jesus came and died upon the cross. Suffering, as was foretold. Being in the grave until the third day, as was foretold, but overcoming death and rising. The prophets looked for the coming of the Messiah. They knew it would require suffering, as Isaiah 53 indicates, that it would result in glory, the defeat of their enemies, the final fulfillment of promised blessing, the inheritance of the land, the experience of peaceful blessedness. Yet they looked forward through the Spirit of Christ to what was yet to be revealed. Yet those prophecies were for you and for me. So that we could recognize in Jesus, in his death and resurrection, the fulfillment of God's promises. It was revealed to them, verse 12 says, that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. The recipients of this letter heard good news from apostles like Peter, missionaries like Barnabas and Silas and Paul, pastors like Timothy. But ultimately, it was God who saw their need. God who saw their need in their sin and their brokenness and the rebellion and prophesied and planned the coming of his son to suffer and then to rise to glory seeing us in our need did not wait for us to come to him but prepared beforehand before through these prophecies what was to come and then to send workers according to the spirit with the good news so that now as we live we live as those who are participating in the sufferings and the resulting glories of Christ and yet so central so glorious is God's plan of salvation in which we are taking part. The, verse, the end of verse 12 says that even the angels long to look. Even the angels long to look. We don't know much about what Peter means by this. Jesus does indicate the interest of angels in the happenings in this world. Luke 15 talks about how angels in heaven celebrate when one sinner repents. My guess is that angels exist to glorify God. And even as they're depicted in Isaiah 6, 
Their faces are covered by their wings because to behold the glory of God is such a magnificent thing. And yet, by looking into the events of God's redemptive history, they can behold the glory of God at work in the lives of men and women like us. We, we would long to be angels often, to have the power, to have the glory. We see men and women falling down in Scripture before angels as if to worship. They seem so powerful and so strong, and yet they look at the events of our lives who trust in Christ and want to know more. They want to see more. We are important because when people look at us, they can see Jesus in our sufferings, in our self-sacrifice, in our hope of future glory, even the conquering of death. Peter anticipates this later in 1 Peter 3, verse 15. He tells them that they need to be ready to give reason for the hope that is within them. The assumption there is that people are going to see in them hope. Because even in the midst of their sufferings, they are looking forward to the future glories because they know that Christ overcomes all. Through our testimonies, through our trust in Jesus, in the midst of suffering, through our sure hope for eternal life, people can see Jesus. They can behold a taste of the glory of God as we in Christ are restored to the image-bearing glory we were meant for. Your importance, brothers and sisters, is not in how many people see you. Not the TikTok likes, not your contacts on the phone, not how many people recognize your face or know your name, but that God has chosen to make you a partaker of his eternal plan of salvation and to make it possible to show himself in and through you. I hate to tell you this, but I never won the world sliding championship. That dream didn't come true. Nor, as other dreams have indicated, have I ever had to suddenly preach for 300 people without any preparation or sermon notes nor have I been attacked by a five-foot spider. Dreams fade. Dreams are not real, at least the sleeping kind. Most of them fade from our memory. Brothers and sisters, compared to eternity, this life is a passing dream. And in Christ, we will wake to reality not the shadow of reality we experience, not the shadow of wealth, not the shadow of security, not the shadow of influence and significance, but the reality that God made us for, restored for us in Christ. We are those who die to this world, who wake from the dream to the reality of a living hope that is accomplished not by us, but by Christ, who died for us, rose again from the dead. And as we wait until that day of fully comprehending all the goodness God has in store for us, we are kept by it. That inheritance will be there when we arrive. And through the faith he is working in us, even in the midst of our trials now, we will be able to glorify God. That's good news.
for those who are suffering. Let's pray. Gracious God, we have so much more than we see. Now you can even give us in the midst of the world taking away from us. We pray that we would have the eyes to see what is ours in Christ, our new life, our new family, our new inheritance, assurance of life everlasting with you as our faith is strengthened even in the midst of trials so that in us you can be seen. Help us walk not by sight but by faith. In the name of Jesus, amen.